welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brown. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring Los Angeles-based guitarist Larry Kuntz. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash high action. Well, here we are again, New West Guitar Group. We're behind the mic, behind the computer. We've got our guitars, but... No concert to go to, so it's a perfect day for us to present another episode of High Action. Welcome. Man, it's great to see you, Perry. How you doing? I'm doing great, you know? Here I am with you guys again, excited to share this upcoming interview. Uh, It's fall now. New York is really beautiful weather. You know, we don't have gigs. We can't really see each other, but we're doing the best we can, and... uh, find myself very grateful for everything that's going well in my yeah. life and uh will you know you and i we go on our walks and we're just uh one block away from city of la slash burbank slash north hollywood and i you know i still haven't run into yeah. you but i'm i'm sure <laughs> however long this pandemic continues we're going to be running into each other out there man you doing well yeah everything's good i'm just i'm i'm uh you know i, pa- I practically passed your house this morning you know, I thought about running up and banging on your windows, but I opted out. Yeah, be, so. be careful. Be careful. I've I've got that front door ready to go from these porch pirates that are taking my Amazon packages. So you wouldn't want to be confused with one of them. But, you know, I digress. I digress like we do sometimes when we're on the High Action Podcast. But uh, again, we're so happy you guys have all joined us. Episode three today is featuring a guitar player who all of us admire and uh, have known for a number of years now, the great Larry Koontz. It's been such an awesome opportunity to hang with you guys, I feel like as a band, we're all learning so much how to interact in a new way. I mean, we're used to interacting and improvising together on stage, and here we are interacting and improvising behind a microphone, right? Uh, what's what's one what's been one of your favorite things, Will, about putting together this new podcast? Well, hands down, getting to just talk with all these people that um, normally, I mean. I feel like during the normal flow of life, if we were to reach out to some of the cats that we've done, it would be a lot harder to, to nail down a time and have them be so engaged and just chat with us. And, uh, and so, I mean, it's been a profound learning experience, like just a whole other dimension of learning aside from the music you know, uh, everything involved with that, just getting to talk with them. And it puts more of a real human element into, into everything. So it's, it's been wonderful. Yeah. And then, you know, Perry too, man, I mean, we've been doing new West guitar group for 15 years. And I think over the time we've, we've come up with a lot of ideas between hosting summer camps for guitar players, um, presenting concerts that go to film, uh, doing acoustic guitar concerts, free concerts, you know, and we've, we have talked about putting together a podcast, but it's just been impossible because we've been juggling so much stuff. So, I mean, would you agree that this has like been the ideal time for us to put these episodes together for everybody? Oh, yeah. I mean, we couldn't have done it uh, if we were busy touring like we have been in the past. And with our guests, if they were also busy touring, it would have been a lot more difficult. But I think it's just important during this time to try to come together and inspire each other and, and build some community. I mean, we're in a what feels like a free-for-all pandemic, and mm. it can be kind of crazy at times. So it's good to connect with each other and laugh about stuff and gain some insight about people's careers. The people that we've been talking to have had some incredible careers, yep. whether it's 40-plus years or they're just starting out. So we're pretty excited for this. Yeah, man. Yeah. And again, today with Larry Kuntz, you guys are going to get to all hear what a great musician he is and his artistry. You know, he's somebody who I look up to. He's a fantastic dad. He's a fantastic family guy. He's also somebody who just really represents a guy that brings together community. Um, And guys like this are are just legendary in jazz. I mean, we hear so many stories of all the great 
jazz artists that mentored young musicians and let them play on the bandstand. And Kuntz is certainly one of these guys that lets, that, that has provided those opportunities for myself and in a way for the New West Guitar Group too, man, because he's always been there for us. So without further ado, I'd like just to get right into episode three today. And even before we do, for those of you who are new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or uh, on Spotify because we got lots of exciting episodes coming up for those of you who've heard these three thus far. So here we go. We've got The Great Larry Koontz, episode three of High Action. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, man. We appreciate it, dude. Thank you, John. I'm flattered. <laughs> it's funny, as we got this idea to do high action, your name came up even before we came up with the podcast idea, Larry, because, you know, you're just, all, to all of us, you're such a giant, man. You know, you realize you're such a giant of jazz guitar, right? Uh, you're very kind. I, I don't feel like that at all. And <laughs> And I feel like you guys are giants. I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of you guys. It's almost hard to know where to begin. I, I think one of the first questions a lot of us have is, you know, what was it like growing up with your dad being a jazz guitar player and growing up in a household where jazz guitar was happening before you were even playing uh, bebop on your instrument, man? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, the music was always sort of present, you know, so on the turntable, uh, my father loved Bill Evans and Stan Getz and Count Basie. So the, that sound and the vibe of all of those musicians was sort of always in the air. But uh, I actually was not that interested in guitar in the early years. And my father was not proactive in terms of like saying, you, you should sit down and do this or we want to give you music lessons. They, I think they had a good strategy. They just sort of allowed it to come to me. Yeah. There, was there a little bit of a hang from time to time? Did guys like Howard Roberts and stuff come over to your house? Not Howard Roberts. My father did know Howard, and he knew Joe Pass and all those those people. But I don't really remember guitarists coming over as much as, like, uh, Warren Marsh would occasionally come over. So people that were part of that Pasadena jazz scene and Warren lived in, in that area at that time, would often come over. Got but it. he wasn't really a guitar hang guy like John Pisano would be. Yeah, because, you know, I think of a guy like Dave Koontz as somebody like a John Pisano, especially nowadays, as being like one of these guys, man, that really connects us to Bob Bain and Al Viola and all of the cats that were around in the 50s and 60s. Um, and so it's just, it's, it, yeah, it's interesting, man, that you would say that there wasn't as much maybe a hang at the house. Some some guys would come over. Um, did your dad encourage you at an early age to go out with him and, like, check out gigs at Shelley's Manhole and um, Dante's and those kinds of venues? Not really. I would say that, though, as a, as a baby, my mother relates stories of, of carrying me in a bassinet and going into smoky clubs and drinking martinis. And she felt a little guilty about that, you know, with a baby in tow, you know, listening to, to, uh, my father used to be with George Shearings with Chico Hamilton. So occasionally they would be in town and she'd take me to, uh, to check it out as a baby. <laughs> and at the age of seven, I went on a tour with my father along with George Shearing and that included Stick Super and Andy Simpkins at the time. And we went to the East Coast, went to New York and went to Washington, D.C. And this was at the time of uh, civil rights unrest, actually, 68. Um, so I was pretty young at the time. I was seven. I just remember being taken care of by Andy Simpkins' wife, Kay, at that time. We actually went to Milwaukee at this, on that trip, and I got to see Jabbar before he was Jabbar. You know, he was still, <laughs> before he had the uh, Muslim conversion, you know, with the Milwaukee Bucks. So uh, it, there were just all these wonderful sort of scattered memories. I can't really put the pieces together, but, you know, going to concerts, showing up to uh, TV studios, you know, to see, and meeting with George Shearing, who was a very kind man. I guess that you kind of share 
a lineage or a, a fraternity almost with guys like Gerald Clayton, whose dad is John Clayton, Anthony Wilson, whose dad is Gerald Wilson. Were there some other of your friends at the time who were your age, whose parents were active in the music scene, whether they were studio musicians or um, serious classical or serious jazz guys too? Yeah, not really outside of a, a friend named Dean McCoy, who I went to high school with. He's a drummer. Um, and his his mother was Arlette McCoy, who was a pianist, and she married Monty Budwig. And so we used to go to Monty Budwig's house, and Scott, of course, was was a student of Monty's. So we'd go over there quite a bit and, and hang out with Monty, and he was amazing. Beautiful, melodic bass player. So cool. All of these names, I feel like... It's so important for our listeners as they're listening to go Google some of these guys, check out some stuff, especially with YouTube. It's a click away to look up Monty Budwig or some other guys that I think about in your early career, Larry, like Jimmy Rolls, for example. What was it like to work with him? Uh, Jimmy was wonderful. He was kind of um, curmudgeonly a little bit, but it, it was always with a really good core beneath that. Harmonically, it was just it was just Jimmy Rolls. He would play immediately. You'd identify a voice behind all of his decisions. I was lucky enough to be called by Jimmy to do a recording. Right now, the name is eluding me. It's Jimmy plus two plus three plus four, I believe. Freddie Hubbard was supposed to be on the session. Unfortunately, Freddie, uh, these are, you know, he was always kind of struggling with drug addiction. He opted out at the very last moment, so he didn't end up making the session. But this is, we're in the studio waiting for Freddie, you know. So I was kind of thrilled at the prospect of, of recording with Freddie. I'd already met him, actually played with him through uh, Herbie Lewis, bass player that recorded with McCoy Tyner. And uh, Herbie used me a lot in a, a quartet that was based in Pasadena. And Billy Higgins was the drummer. I mean, God, you know, how lucky am I? Uh, so we used to play in a quartet with uh, Billy quite a bit. And we played a concert at the Pomona City College Jazz Festival. And Herbie augmented the group with Billy Childs. That's where I first met Billy. And Bobby Hutcherson and Billy Higgins. I mean, I was, I was in heaven. I mean, I, I can't believe I you know, had, was lucky enough to experience that. So Freddie Hubbard was also on that concert. You know, I heard stories about Freddie, so I was a little nervous because he could be real hot and cold, but he was very warm and we struck it off really well. That's uh, fantastic. Of course, he didn't work with a lot of guitar players. I mean, he recorded a lot with George Benson early on too. I guess guys of that generation were featuring electric piano a lot more because it was so nouveau and in vogue. You saw the tradition of jazz guitar with your dad, but guys like us, Larry, consider you to be somebody who's taken that tradition and, and really pushed it forward. And there must have been a lot of challenges with that during the 80s and 70s and 80s and 90s because jazz was such, um, I mean, people call it fusion, but I just think of it as such an exploratory time. And guitar seems to be a little lost. You listen to Concord Records at the time, and they're putting out like old school recordings of Joe Pass and Tal Farlow and Herb Ellis. As you entered USC and as you went to college, did you have a vision for yourself as being a real modern player or somebody who wanted to really swing and carry the tradition and play a box? I'm curious how much of that vision came about around that time, uh, talking about a lot of these artists. You know, it's such a beautiful description of what was going on at that time. I, I felt exactly what you're describing. I felt kind of trapped, and I also felt like, um, you know, Schofield was actually really hitting it at that time. You know, Matheny, of course, was, was already sort of a, a known quantity, Talking, I'm talking about the 80s, right? Already, Matheny sort of uh, had made it. I remember Billy Higgins telling me he's the wealthiest jazz musician I've ever met, you know, because he, had, he was so incredibly successful. And of course, you know, iconic. At that time, Schofield was kind of coming on the scene, and I thought I should check out a 335. I thought I should look into... Uh, a sound that included overdrive, just a little bit of dirt, and I got a little rack together with some some different uh, digital devices. On to be honest with you, I never connected with it. I, I always felt like I wanted. I always felt like the effects sort of hid what I was trying to get through because a digital effect is just a digital effect. You know, it is. It's a known quantity. So, you know, with this background in classical guitar and, and really honoring being in awe 
of people that play that instrument, which is an acoustic instrument, and basically they're in control of all the nuance, and it's right there, and it's right directly from the artist to the to the audience. I think that aesthetic really kind of informed my playing. Also sort of made me realize, I guess this was like in the 90s, in a number of different crises I experienced, that it wasn't for me. You know, even though it was sort of in vogue at the time, uh, I couldn't find my voice in the midst of that. So, yeah, I kind of stayed with an arch top, very pure sound, but, you know, also experimenting with occasionally some kinds of musics that would not be associated with an arch top. Around this time, you're mentioning the 90s now, too, and we've kind of talked over a little bit what it must have been like to be at SC in the early 80s. Perry and I were joking, were you the first guy to walk across the stage and take a jazz studies degree out of USC's That's, hands? That is actually true. They were working on establishing that degree when I was a studio guitar major. Uh, I was studying with uh, Duke Miller and Paul LaRose, and I remember having a, a discussion with Duke at one point, who was a great guy, great teacher too, and Paula Rose as well, great, great teacher, in a different way, younger generation. But I remember having this discussion with Duke, you know, when you play a recital at USC and you're a studio guitar major, there's a bunch of hoops you have to jump through. And I really felt ill-equipped to jump through those hoops. I didn't want to do a little of this, a little of this, and a little of this. It just was not my personality description. And I approached Duke with this, and he said, well, you know, for your, for your junior... Uh, recital. Uh, we expect you to do that, but for your senior recital, you can sort of move beyond those borders and sort of be yourself. Uh, and I, I had to, I had to tell Duke in in no uncertain terms that it really was not a good fit for me. And at that same time, I was sort of uh, straddling um, being with some of the people that were outside of the studio guitar program. Um, and Tom Mason was working on, on forming um, this uh, jazz studies degree and, you know, suggested that maybe we could make this work. I would have to, to take some independent studies instead of classes because the curriculum wasn't in place and the class wasn't in place. So the last year I transferred into the uh, jazz studies program and I did finish with jazz studies. When I hear your tunes that you've written in homage to Jimmy Weibel. I hear that amazing classical foundation. And again, like just thinking even outside Los Angeles, Larry, uh, you know, Will and Perry and I talk a lot on the road about players who have a certain kinds of background and how that comes through in their music. And I hear a lot of classical playing. And sometimes I don't know if it's the classical playing or the way that Jimmy Weibel must have taught you. But maybe we could listen here a little bit to Cajun Waltz off of What's in the Box. Let's listen to how Larry plays, especially the right hands. You make it feel so great, man. So let's check this out. Yeah, so that was originally called Etude Number no. 9, right? Yeah. His time sense was ridiculous. It was just so beautiful. Uh, I, I, I wish I had that kind of insistence. Of, he kind of had what I, what I describe as a Texas swing. There's a certain lilt to it, you know? And, it, and it's, just, it's just persistent. It just moves through everything in like a freight train, you know? So I think 
mainly the sound of that stuff, but also Jimmy really helped me in terms of like understanding how to use the left hand and sort of achieve a certain independence with counterpoint. And it has to do with fingering. Um, Jimmy was a really immaculate teacher when it came to being specific about fingerings. And it's not that he, 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 uh, he was very flexible. If I came up with another solution that felt better to me, he'd always encourage that. But he sort of fostered uh, an approach to and a logic to fingering that sort of has stayed with me to this day. So most of the teaching consisted of playing his pieces and talking about the musical value. Um, so fingerings, of course, all that specific information, but also getting beyond that and saying, you know, how do you shade this? How do you use dynamics to uh, make a performance come to life? That kind of stuff. Got it. Yeah, and then when you started teaching at Cal Arts in 1990, um, were you still studying with Jimmy at that time? I know, or did you? You guys were just colleagues and friends at that point, probably, right? Yeah, I I studied with Jimmy from the age of 15 to maybe 18, so it was early on. It was about three year chunk. My father was really close friends with Jimmy and remained friends up until his death. And so he was always part of my life, even though I wasn't studying with him. So we'd check in every once in a while. But uh, in terms of weekly lessons, that was really sort of a three-year chunk. It's such a prolific career you've had because, again, it goes so far back. You know, we're talking about you when you're 14 to 18 and then at USC and now moving up into like the times which you're currently still at CalArts, um, working with Charlie Hayden back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, man, you must have seen so much, especially through the, I mean, I did my master's degree with you in 2010 to 2012. So you've just seen so much change in jazz education through the lens of CalArts. And I, it, right. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that got going to what was going on in your career in about 1990 that maybe was a challenge to juggle while you're kind of getting things going at CalArts. Great question, John. Really, it's kind of a formative period in my life. So uh, around 1990, as you said, I was teaching at CalArts, but only in an adjunct um, position. So I was there maybe one day a week, teaching maybe four or five lessons at the most. Paula Rose, who was at USC, was taking a leave. He was actually going through some medical problems at the time, and he needed to... Uh, take a leaf, a creative leaf from his teaching post. So Paul was full-time there, and they reached out to me to, to cover Paul's position. So I was actually teaching full-time at USC for two years, uh, in 1990 and in 1991. So I would say that period of my life was the period where I was realizing that digital effects and electronics and all the other stuff that might have been in vogue at the time was not for me. That was the first thing. While also admiring the people that used that stuff. I mean, Bill Frizzell was starting to come on the scene. I was always loved Bill's, you know, color palette. And it just didn't resonate with me. And I love Schofield too. So that was happening. Um, but I was also teaching at two schools. So I was teaching at, at USC and CalArts. Um, and my plate was full. And I would say that time of my life, that was also around the time that my first daughter was born, Rachel. And so I would say at that time, my life consisted of coming up with lesson plans, planning what I was going to do, coming up with material, um, which sometimes was hastily written, and sort of devising concepts for how I was going to couch what I did as a musician, as an improvising musician, in, into language and into some sort of uh, digestible curriculum. So that was, that was, that took a lot of energy. I would say I was really not focusing on my career at that time. Although I, I was still playing with Cleo Lane when I, when I was making that transition. And, uh, but but I made a conscious decision about, I think, 91 to break that off because I just couldn't handle being on the road and teaching as much as I was and trying to juggle everything. Stuff that you guys are all struggling with as well. It's, it's a delicate, you know, tricky 
balance. Yeah, man. And at the same time, you're, you have an amazing opportunity too, because you're at such great institutions and then you're being a dad, a new dad. It's interesting. A lot of those challenges, like you just said, we faced this too, where uh, we're juggling the touring and the, and the playing. Did you at that point see like, yes, I'm realizing my vision, like I'm doing the teaching, I'm doing the touring, I'm doing the recording. Or when you had kind of, I don't know, those years after college, had you thought to yourself, I want a record deal, I want to just be on the road. If I have to teach, I will. Were you meeting your vision at that time? Wow. It's so great to, to be interviewed by great musicians because you really get it. And also, we have this long history, John. So yeah, I'm I know. And Harry and Will as well. But especially with John, because, you know, John was at CalArts. Uh, you really understand, you have an understanding. And it's your questions are really pointed. And um, at that time, it's interesting because it's almost like the answer's almost right there because you're so in tune with what was going on. I kind of was frustrated. I was wondering what was I going to do. Um, I was looking to possibly have a recording contract. That's in the day where there were some available. Wynton Marsalis was sort of in vogue in terms of like being a traditional uh, jazz musician. And he had inc an incredible recording contract, you know, with RCA. So there were some younger artists that were, that was kind of the, the years of the young lions. But I have to say, from all the touring that I was doing with, with Cleo at the time, that early on, I kind of realized that I didn't want to be on the road all the time. I didn't want to make that sacrifice. And I had, uh, you know, my first child at that time. And I just didn't want to be away. And the teaching sort of characterized the energy that I was putting in to uh, my music at that time. And I really was not career focused and kind of frustrated at the same time um, by the limits of what I was feeling. Man, it's really deep to hear you talk like this. And you know what we're going to do really quick? We're going to take a little break for a word from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to hear some questions from everybody else here too. So thanks, Larry. This is awesome, man. Today's episode of High Action is brought to you by Henriksen Amplifiers. So we've used Henriksen now exclusively in the New West Guitar Group since about 2013. The amps are fantastic. They have a real natural sound to them. And if you're a guitar player who cares about the way that your archtop guitar just sounds uh, in of its own, it's a great amp to check out. They're also incredibly durable, really gig-worthy. Um, we really dig them. They're very consistent, even, and they sound beautiful. So if you want more information on the Bud, the Blue, the Bud 10, the Blue 10, the Forte, or other products that Hendrickson makes, check them out online at www.henriksenamplifiers.com. Okay, again, thank you guys for being here on High Action. We're back with Larry Kuntz, such an awesome first interview. It's funny, hey, Perry, did, did you, I'm just curious to actually ask you a question, man. Did you study with Larry while you were in Los Angeles at all? Well, let's see. I've taken a lesson or two from Larry privately, been to a number of his concerts and shows. Uh, in fact, I was thinking today, the first time that I heard heard you larry was a concert series that was really cool but short-lived in la and for the listeners I, I i live in brooklyn but i was in la from 2001 until about 2009 and the concert series i'm referring to was called guitars del mar does that at all ring a bell to you definitely i do remember doing something that scott Tennant was involved in it was the first time that i had heard you play when i moved down to la i started to get to know your name and people were uh, talking about you your reputation was exceeding you yeah so upon getting to know your 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 music and your style uh like i think a lot of guitar players you know i was i was pretty blown away really in awe of what you could do and the way you delivered it and you know we're going to be very effusive here because we're just big fans of your playing larry so you're going to have to put up with it for a few minutes okay i'll try to it. <laughs> <laughs> but when i was thinking about this this interview today i was like some of the things that I think a lot of guitar players admire about your playing, especially me. Uh, first of all, it's the sound. It's just a naturally clear sound that I think you get out of your instrument. 
um, that you seem, it seems to really start with just how the guitar sounds acoustically. And I think from there, that's the, seems to be the foundation of your sound. Um, if I'm projecting, please, please correct me, but uh, it's a really naturally beautiful, clear sound. Um, and then in addition to that, you've kind of created your own style of, of improvisation really on the guitar. And a lot of it to my ears uh, is, is really drawn from this wonderful sort of rhythmic interaction and sophistication that you've sort of brought into your improvising. And, you know, a lot of jazz musicians, jazz guitarists are always taught the phrase, you know, like rhythm dictates melody. And it's, it's true, but it's a very kind of vague phrase, you know, in, in a sense. And I think you've just really established, I don't know, like a specific way of doing that and a specific style of doing that. Um, and it's at, it's at that very concert, Guitars Del Mar, where I think I picked up an album from you, uh, your album Americana. A great quartet album for people that don't know. Uh, it's with Dave Roydstein piano, Scott Colley on bass, and Kendall Kay. And uh, there's a, the second track on that album, I think, is You and the Night and the Music. that I was always so drawn to about your playing. And I just wanted to know if you could elaborate on kind of developing that style or some of maybe your, your bigger influences when it came to that style. Perry, I, I think your description of what I feel internally is, is really accurate. Uh, first of all, everything for me does stem from sound. And um, there was a long period of, of, uh, of my own practice uh, in which I did not emphasize sound, in which I emphasized uh, either, you know, we're all guitarists, playing fast or trying to learn more and more sophistica sophisticated uh, harmonic motions or melodic motions. And it wasn't until I kind of came out of that phase and looked into sound that I really started to connect on a deeper level with what I did. So, as you said, sound is the source of everything. For me, it's, it's being really connected to a sound that feels like it's emanating or is a model of something that's internal for me. Um, so um, regarding rhythm, um, it's interesting because I think the melody dictates rhythm. So that's the wonderful aspect of melody in that it's sort of a magic bullet. When you play... A melody note, it tells you what rhythm to play. Um, it tells you, you know, what you're implying harmonically. It gives you phrase structure. It tells you what the emotion of that moment is. So um, a lot of people, when they, because I do, you know, so, some, some people characterize my playing as being sort of over the bar line. Um, I, I would say a better description of my playing is maybe that, I want the bar lines to disappear. I don't want the formal elements of music when I'm improvising to sort of be apparent. I don't want I don't want there to feel like there's a bump when I'm playing the second chorus of uh, you know 32 bar form. I want it to be an experience that's unfolding in time without calling attention to those bar lines, without calling attention to you know what devices are being used. I kind of want to be the Wizard of Oz, right? I want to sure. be the guy behind the curtain making all this magic happen. I want to be. I don't always get there. But that's kind of um, 
my mode of operating. So a story is being told by that melody and it unfolds in a certain way. And I've never sort of, um, you know, it's interesting. People ask about my, what ideas I have about rhythmic study, you know, and when I, when I come up with those ideas or when I, when I share ideas, it's always reverse engineering. It's like looking at what I did naturally that came out of a melodic uh, process and finding out what it is by studying what that is and then um, and then sort of distilling it in that form on paper. But I always when I when I meet with students and talk about uh, some of these um, devices that you can use to play over the bar line, I always try to give them um, a healthy sense that really if you if you if you if you're too tied to the rhythm, you're going to lose the story. You're not going to know where those commas are, where the sentence structure is, where the paragraph is, you know, where the phrase structure is. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just love your description of, um, you know, some people call my plane over the bar line, but really I just want the bar lines to disappear. I think that's just wonderful. Uh, it's a great way of thinking about, about uh, improvising and, and getting out of the traditional kind of hangups and structure that kind of limit people. Um, I just want to highlight another album for people that might be checking you out. Um, Storybook, the album you did, uh, mainly a duo with, with Dark, Dark Goals. And uh, I know Minyango Jackson, I believe his name is, is on percussion on that album as well. That's right. This was, an, this was another uh, album of yours that really influential for, for me. Um, there's something really beautiful that I've always found about just the guitar and upright bass. That's just a, such a, I think, a beautiful combination. The guitar has a lot of beauty in just in, in just a quiet zone as well when you're not being pushed too hard by a drummer. So a lot of, the, you know, uh, subtle moments on the guitar can really come out. And this album, again, a storybook. Uh, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your collaboration with Dark. Um, you guys really seem like kindred spirits uh, in, in a musical sense and from what I know about you personally as, as well. And, um, you know, the three of us in New West have had a collaboration for a lot of years that's meant a lot to us in addition to collaborations with other people. And I think it's one of the strongest things you can develop as a musician in your career, some sort of collaborative collaboration with someone. And it seems like you and Dark have established something and just would want you to maybe expand a little bit upon that uh, musical relationship and personal relationship. Sure. Uh, that's an important musical relationship for me. I would say, you know, there's kind of um, a handful of people that you sort of have the kind of chemistry with that you realize is going to be long lived. You know, you know, you look at a horizon and you, and you just imagine yourself making music with these people for a long time. And Dark is right at the top of that list. So I met Dark when he moved from, actually from Mexico City. Uh, interestingly enough, he was, he was still in Poland when it was uh, communist Poland. So he defected. He, he was on a tour of uh, Mexico. He met a, a lady there that he fell in love with. They got married. And he was working in Mexico City, um, which had, for him, very limited possibilities professionally. So he made this move to Los Angeles, I think after being two, there for two years in 89, we played a, a really informal gig in Pasadena at a, at a place that I played a lot called the Loch Ness Monster Pub. It's interesting how chemistry works. From the first note, I just realized this was special, right? What, right. How Doric played. Yeah. Um, and so this Project Storybook, and I can't. I think it was recorded in 2006, maybe. Uh, that was a project long in coming. We sort of formed a band called the Los Angeles Jazz Quartet, uh, and we recorded. We went into this funky studio to make a demo. In I guess it was 1990. So that's how quickly Dark and I sort of connected and, and wanted to form a band. We were also working with. Uh, uh, Tenor saxophonist Chuck Manning, who was at that time working at, at JPL, still works at JPL. And Chuck was um, somebody that I'd met at this jam session that, in Pasadena that was really uh, sort of, in my formative years, really instructive and informed my playing a lot. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, we formed this band with the drummer Kevin Tullius, who was uh, Kevin passed away in in uh, I think two thousand. Amazing drummer, very melodic, interesting composer. We played a lot of his music. We went in the studio in nineteen ninety. We made this record, and subsequent to that, we made three other Los Angeles jazz quartet records, and actually just released one about a year ago with different personnel. So Dark and I. Along, the, along that path, would connect a lot in a duo format. You know, little gigs here and there, uh, little opportunities, maybe even to play parties or something like that. Sure. And always, it always felt like a profound experience to me. You know, he always felt like, it always felt like he, he sort of drew me out of myself, that I lost any, self of, any sense of self-consciousness and sort of would instead just go for the real music. Um, so I knew that uh, a long time ago that I wanted to record with Dark, and, and so when this project sort of felt pregnant to happen, um, we thought, okay, let's make this really streamlined. We both really love, um, you know, Dark coming from, from Poland, love the music of Chopin, and Dark is an amazing composer, and it talked about melodic writing so he had all these pieces he wanted to record i had a few pieces that i wanted to record that felt sort of classical in nature some through composed with mm -hmm. no improvisation and so we said we should you know we should finally just go into the studio and and document this stuff and we decided to bring uh, munyungo along just to right. add another another character to some of the tracks so that there's some other colors and there's percussion um, and you know, it's interesting. I'm really close to this recording. I, I, I usually, I don't like listening to my own recorded projects. Mm -hmm. Um, I get, I, I still get a little, um, self-conscious about certain things and I get a little self-critical in a bad way sometimes. So I, I try to keep my distance from listening to something once I've recorded it. But with that recording, I found that I can revisit it because, because it to me it, it it takes me back to that time and it also takes me out of myself. It feels like it comes from a, a good place, and it's interesting because it really did not receive that much attention when it came out. Um, we we you know we loved it. We both loved it a lot, but it didn't resonate with people that were you know reviewing it, and um, and it really is inconsequential. Yeah, uh, I really feel it's it, we had to record it anyway. You know, there's a there's a genuine core to that recording, I think. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, again, we're talking about Storybook, an album uh, from Larry Coons and, and Darkles, uh, also featuring Manunga Jackson. A really amazing recording for for people that haven't checked it out, along with all of uh, Larry's catalog uh, worth checking out. Um, I'm going to just pass it over here to Will. Why don't you jump on in? Yeah, well, following right up from Perry, um, talking about some albums of yours or albums that you've been a sideman on that have been beyond instrumental to me, just hearing the guitar, hearing how it can function, especially in a trio setting, um, the Tom Warrington trio albums, mm -hmm. um, especially Corduroy Road and Bolivia. Man, I'm, your playing on those albums shines so great. I, is it is Joe LaBarbera the drummer on on those albums? Yes. Yeah. Man, like you must believe in spring, and especially on the album Bolivia, uh, on if not for you, which I believe is a contrafact of but not oh, for me, right? So, just just to to be clear, Will, Bolivia is one of the cuts on mm -hmm. on, on the project. So you might be referring to um, let me see, I can't remember all the titles. So we did Nelson. You get a large discography. The mountain. Corduroy Road, and there's one other that a uh, back nine. So it's so Bolivia was one of the cuts. It's that right. Cedar Walton tune. Well, I love hearing how, especially on "If Not for You," the the track, not the album, the track. Like Perry and John were saying, the way you interact rhythmically with the drums, and I remember the bass drops out, and it's just you and Joe, and the way that you guys are weaving lines together is so great. So. I'm curious, did you spend any time playing with only drummers and really just practicing riffing off each other that way? Not really. You know, when you play in a trio format, the real challenge is to sort of... T 
take it out of a typical zone. You know, I, I think I have to say, even great players, when when I hear them recording guitar trio records or piano trio records, um, and it's you know you play ahead and everybody takes a solo and then you play the head out. To me, I, I kind of find that really uh, redundant. It's been done before, mm -hmm. you know. So the challenge is to sort of create some sense of going somewhere else or a sense of surprise. So I think that moment between Joe and I came out of that, you know, basically uh, let's break up the format a little bit, you know, on this one, let's do, let's, let's feature two instruments that haven't featured, been featured together. There's already been bass and guitar. It's very limited, you know, bass and drums. So I think that's what it came out of will, although I had, you know, played a lot with Joe LaBarbera and still play a lot with Joe. Um, and had experienced that, but um, but that's not not something I've ever really sort of uh, pursued. Like you know, Coltrane mm -hmm. did a lot mm -hmm. with uh, Elvin Jones. You know, another th another thing about those albums that really strikes me is how dynamically even and in control you are at all times. And I think that has a lot to to say also beyond your playing, also with just your persona. You're very calm and and at peace with everything. And that really comes out when I hear you play, even, even if you're really stretching something rhythmically or like we were talking about over the bar line, it just feels so eloquently delivered. I also have a nerdy uh, gear question because these guys haven't asked any gear questions. And I mean, this is, this, it's this a guitar, guitar podcast. podcast. <laughs> so what are some picks that you like to use? <laughs> um, you know, I use these, picks that were made by a company called Coast. They went out of business a long time ago. It's basically a cellophane pick, teardrop shape, heavy. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I file my picks when I first mm. get them. Because I, I, early on I realized that there's a certain, you know, I, I think there's like this, you know, the symbol for infinity. Mm -hmm. You know, when we pick, I think there's some of that in there. There's some of that, you know, that kind of shape. Absolutely. That, that magic eight. Um, and from that shape comes these these sort of marks on the pick that kept emerging. And I studied it. And I said, oh, okay, so as I'm wearing this pick in and it feels good, this is where those, those shapes are. And so uh, after studying it for a while, I'd get some files and I brought out a new pick. I would try to recreate where those grooves are so that if you know i play round wound strings so that when i get to the d a and e string it doesn't have that grainy feeling it mm -hmm. kind of flows off it in the right way because it has those uh, beveled edges mm -hmm. i hope you don't mind i had to take it there i um, love it we, we have to we have to ask you as well uh larry since the you know title of our podcast the name of our podcast is high action um you know, whereabouts do you place your action, sir? It's high, right? <laughs> yeah, it's. A, I would say it's actually medium. You know, I mean, really? some there. You know, there, I've played some guitars that uh, sort of felt like they almost had an upright bass action. Never liked it because it felt thuddy to me. I never. Uh, and you know, bass players actually that have really high action and have that thump. To me, I, I'm not as crazy about that as having medium action and having a tone center. You know or a pitch center, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say I'm somewhere in the middle. I've, I've also played guitars that have strings right down on the, on the frets. And, and, and when you play it acoustically, you hear that rattle, you know? I don't like that either. You know, to me, it, I need some resistance. You know, I need something that's giving me something back. So I would say medium high. Medium action. A new podcast by Larry Kuntz. So, you know, this is awesome. I think we've got just a couple more little questions to maybe button the interview with here. What's, let's just some quick ones. What's a desert island recording for you? Um, Glenn Gould's Goldberg Variations. That's one of them. I just love it. It just transports me. It takes me to another place. Great. Amoroso. Joao Gilberto. I love the way he sings and the way he plays guitar. And 20th Century Guitar, Julian Bream, is another one that just, like, kills me. Oh, I love anything Julian yep. Bream. You know, it's interesting. I, I heard um, 
I've heard over the years quite a few times, you know, John Williams and, and, and Julian Breen paired together. And it's interesting, the dichotomy, because, you know, John Williams, of course, is it's like perfection personified. You know, technically, he's just a, a wizard. But there's something about the juice that, that Julian Bream has that I, I've never encountered uh, to the same extent with other classical guitars. Right. And just a couple other little things, too. Uh, where can everybody go check out your music? Everything is, is available um, uh, in streaming format on iTunes, CD Baby, um, all those, all, all the streaming uh, websites would have our content. Cool, awesome. And then finally, what's one little piece of advice you'd have for young guitar players like Perry, Will, and I out there right now? Well, you guys are already sort of up and running. I mean, you, all, all three of you are, are virtuosic, um, amazing voices on the instrument. So maybe I'll, I'll go even pre, uh, you know, before players that are not quite on your trajectory. Um, I, I think it's important to sort of um, be true to yourself. I mean, it sounds a little corny, but um, if something doesn't resonate, it's important that you realize the stuff that does not resonate. You know, as, as a guitarist, you know, there's so many different forms that a guitarist can take. There's so many styles. There's so many different, um, there's so many amazing virtuosos. You know, a real, real, a real instructive lesson for me was when I heard um, some great flamenco players and I thought, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. So I, I started to dive in and I started to realize, first of all, I didn't have a cultural connection with it. So the way I was shaping the experience was not right at all. And then I had the realization that, you know what, I'm really going to have to dedicate my whole life to this if I want to be a great flamenco guitarist. And it wasn't, it wasn't a fit. I mean, it's, and, and it's, it's, it says nothing about my appreciation of it. But the realization that it would take so much energy um, to do that was a significant learning experience for me because then I refocused my energy. You know, I was satisfied not to have to be great at all these different things and to, to, to just sort of focus my energy on this one thing that I really connected with um, really helped consolidate a lot of things for me. Awesome. Man, well, this has been such a great interview today and uh larry we just thank you so much bro for being here thanks for being a great mentor and joining us on high action thank you larry thanks larry thanks will perry john thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of high action we'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible especially those who follow us on patreon if you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.